the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, tsunami in the eastern portion of Mare Tranquilitatis closing in on coast. Evacuations must be complete by A.D. 30,243, else disaster will ensue. So get to moving. Switches and witches and fitches with itches. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with D.J. Butler this time. Dave Butler talks about Witchy Eye, his excellent new alternate history fantasy novel, a debut at Bain Books. This one is just a load of fun. It's set in an alternate 1815 or so where magic works, particularly Appalachian magic, and a young woman with witchy powers and a huge secret destiny must travel through a strangely transformed American continent uh, with all kinds of cool historical echoes and changes. It's a wonderful adventure and coming-of-age novel with echoes of Manly Wade Wellman and Orson Scott Card's Alvin the Maker series and, and many others. And Dave Butler will tell us much more about it. And we also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now here's the news. The March new hardcovers and trade paperbacks are out of the clouds of possibilities and showering down, ouch, upon the barren land to produce flowers. Not sure where that analogy is going, but the new March books are here. These include Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler. Sarah Calhoun, a 15-year-old with a natural talent for hexing and one bad eye, has her world turned on its head when a Yankee wizard priest tries to kidnap her. Sarah fights back with the aid of a mysterious monk called Tholonais, who is one of the not-quite-human firstborn. It's Tholonais who reveals to Sarah a secret heritage she never dreamed could be hers. We'll hear a lot more about that in a moment from Dave Butler. Also out is book three in Reiki Spore's Arenaverse series, Challenges of the Deeps. The arena, a vast alien other space that all species were forced to enter when they discovered faster-than-light travel. The arena, where the lives of entire species might hang in the balance in a single challenge. The only thing you can't do is refuse to play the arena's game. Now, Ariane Austin and her crew have learned these lessons the hard way and have managed to survive. But now a depth of honor to humanity's oldest ally has come due, and Ariane must travel into the legendary deeps of the arena to confront whatever new trials the arena may throw at humanity. And finally out this month is Little Green Men Attack, edited by Robin Wayne Bailey and Brian Thomas Schmidt. From the far reaches of outer space they come, inscrutable aliens, malicious invaders, wacky tourists from other planets, to conquer, study, and tickle us. It's a humorous anthology of little green men stories, including stories by Robert Silverberg, Mike Resnick, Esther Friesner, Elizabeth Moon, Jody Lynn Nye, and many more. Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler, Challenges of the Deep by Reiki Spore, and Little Green Men Attack, edited by Robin Wayne Bailey and Brian Thomas Schmidt, are now available at booksellers everywhere. 
want to welcome DJ Butler to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Hey, Tony. DJ Butler, Dave Butler, uh, grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He's the author of City of the Saints, Rock Band Fights Evil, uh, Space Eldritch, which is very hard to say, and uh, Cretchling, all from Wordfire Press, and now from Bain Books, and at booksellers everywhere, new historical fantasy novel, Witchy Eye. So Dave, Witchy Eye is not exactly a debut, since you've written a few books for Wordfire, but it is a pretty stunning piece of work from a newer novelist, I must say. It's it's getting some rave reviews, too. Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, and Larry Correa gave you a great author's review, which we've quoted on the dust jacket, by the way, of course. Um, he called it impressive creativity and depth. Uh, I guess he was talking about the book and you. You have a wonderfully evocative and lyrical prose style, I've found, which is what I suspect set off the fireworks at PW. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to writing fiction. Uh, like, so what's the DJ Butler creation myth? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, um, I think, uh, so I always wanted to be a writer and for the short, uh, synopsis is I chickened out for a long time. I, I, when I was a kid, my, my dad, uh, was an economics professor and he traveled to conferences and when he had to be gone, he'd bring back a gift and he brought back, uh, Starting when I was about seven years old, he brought back books, and the first thing he brought was a box set of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And these were the 25th anniversary Silver Jubilee Edition uh, Valentine paperbacks. They had those Daryl K. Sweet covers, uh, and uh, I crawled into my top bunk uh, and, uh, and, and didn't come out of it until I'd read uh, the whole set. Uh, and, and I wanted to be a writer, and I remember I had a journal, and, uh, and, and, and I, instead of writing what happened in my day in the journal, I'd write bits of things that I, that I thought writers were supposed to write, starting with the back cover copy, which is, I, I assumed how you would do it, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I remember writing, uh, you know, uh, descriptions of a book, or, or one, one or two word, uh, uh, teaser, uh, one or two sentence teaser paragraphs that were, that were supposed to entice the reader in this book I hadn't yet written. Um, so I, uh, I was an avid reader, uh, especially fantasy. For a long time I was trying to find Tolkien again. I think probably that's not true just me, but a lot of people, writers as well as readers, trying, trying to capture the magic of reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. Uh, and, uh, and you never, never quite find it again, but we find a lot of other wonderful stuff, uh, on the way. And, and I thought I would be a writer, uh, until I, uh, got through, got into college and was starting to face kind of reality and, uh, and the question of what I was going to do with my life and, and didn't really have a clear view of how I'd make money as a writer. Uh, and, uh, so I went to law school and, uh, so I spent, so. Oh, 13 years uh, practicing law and uh, always kept my hand in writing stuff in, in shorter form. So uh, not short stories, but I wrote a lot of songs, which by the way, I think shows up in Witchy Eye. There are uh, 
half a dozen original songs in the book, uh, uh, along with other kind of musical content. Um, and yeah, there's some cool, uh, cool lyrics, just like Tolkien. Okay. Yeah, well, Tolkien remains a huge influence. Now, I'm going to do something Tolkien never did, which is uh, not I'm going to do, I'm currently doing. I am recording Witchy Eye, the album. I have a, uh, I have a home studio. And those those songs are not just lyrics; they're fully realized uh, compositions with melody and chord structure. And so, sometime later this year, um, I already got uh, the cover artist Dan Dos Santos' permission. I'll, I'll release a CD on uh, on Amazon. Oh, very cool! Um, we will definitely play some uh, some of those cuts here on the podcast if you want us to as well. Oh, I would love to! I would love to! I will! I will send you CDs. Um, so uh, yeah, so but that's all I did for 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 a lot of a lot of time, uh, a lot of years, and then and then in 2010, a wonderful thing happened, which was I got fired, um, and I got fired in the best possible way. I got fired and given money, and um, because my company had been taken over, and uh, and and so uh, I had this opportunity to do uh, whatever I wanted for a short period of time, and uh, so I wrote, I started writing. And uh, and uh, my wife was you know, was uh, uh, very generous. I'm not sure she was a believer at first. I think she thought I would write a little bit and then go back to getting some lawyer job. Uh, but actually, uh, I wrote uh, prolifically. And uh, uh, right out of the gate, I got an agent, had him for a year, uh, lost the agent, started self-publishing. Uh, my wife got excited and started writing and, and, uh, and ultimately picked up an agent and she's got a book coming out from a random house imprint next year too. So it's really become our small family business. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, uh, picked up an agent again, uh, uh move with myself published into Wordfire Press, which you mentioned, which is a, um, an up and coming mid, mid-sized independent publisher. I mean, they've got couple hundred titles uh so uh, owned by kevin anderson out in colorado and uh, uh and then i picked up an agent and then and then in february of last year uh tony uh, weisskopf made an offer on wishy um which uh which is very exciting i i like all the things i've written um and you gotta be careful right it's like it's like your kids you don't want to tell your kids which one is the favorite? That's never a good idea. Um, uh, but in some in some real ways, Witchy Eye is sort of the song of my heart. It really is the thing that I wrote um, that is in some ways pretty distinctively me, pretty pretty different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am very very excited uh, to see it uh, finally coming into print. Yeah, well, let's uh, Witchy Eye. It's it's really accomplished full novel. Um, definitely part of a tradition as well. Um, I don't know if, if this is also part of your tradition as well as Tolkien. I'm talking about folk magic from America, whether it's British or Celtic or Scandinavian, but uh, a lot of times Scott-Irish. Um, and basing sort of a magical America, either in the past or present on it. Uh, you know, I think about Manly Wade Wellman's Silver John stories, which I love, and David Drake's uh, tribute to Wellman, such as Old Nathan or Orson Scott Card with his Alvin the Maker books, and there's just—I mean, it's it, there's a lot of others. Are any of these influences on you? Um, tell us more about the inspiration for Witchy Eye in particular, as you've alluded to here, if you would. Yeah, 
So, uh, so those those are both bullseyes, actually. And let me, let me give you some more. So, I love the uh, Silver Joe and the Balladeer story. Those are those are fantastic. And I uh, I'm not sure when I read the first ones, but it was you know that is absolutely part of my uh, part of my palette. Uh, and, and part of the, the background of which I, uh, I, I love Alvin the Makers, uh, the Alvin the Makers stories. They're a little more kind of small fantasy, but in terms of their setting, they're probably the closest thing out there uh, to uh, to which I is more epic, and, and there are some other differences we can talk about. But uh, so in terms of uh, of other stuff, though, let me let me let me throw in a, a few more things in there. So so I. Um, about 2011, when I was uh, getting ready to write my next project, uh, I was looking at a few books at the same time. So I was reading to my kids the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at the same time, I had, uh, I had, uh, I can't remember which one, but I was reading a history of the Thirty Years' War in kind of early modern Germany. And, uh, it's sort of silly to make this realization this late, but but you know uh, I, I sort of uh, connected those two pieces and said, oh, you know, this isn't the the Brothers Grimm uh, setting, the settings in which you have both princesses and also lords, mayor, right, aldermen and town council, but also an emperor. Like that's that's early modern Germany, uh, and that and and I sort of made that click and and. Uh, uh, and I thought, you know, I'd really love to write something in this in this setting. So much fantasy tends to be medieval or now urban. Uh, I'd like to write something in kind of a pre-modern Germany. Now, at, at about that time, I started reading a, a historical, a piece of a history, a classic work called Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Oh, sure. And yeah. So, and and so, for listeners who may not recognize that, that is about the early English migrations, plural migrations, into North America. Because the the basic point is this: we think about uh, we think about English migration to America as being a, a single stream, but actually there there are multiple streams, and they come from discrete, distinct places and times in. Uh, in the UK uh, uh, to uh, to dis- two discrete, distinct places and times in America. And, and, and you can see uh, the, the persistent influence uh, of, these, of these migrations. So he, he talks about Ford, and I think the order of treason is the first one is the, um, the Puritans, the, the Yankees, the roundheads who, uh, uh, who are a persecuted religious minority in England, and so they flee mostly from the southeast of England, from Essex and Kent, to uh, Massachusetts Bay, and they bring with them a this a distinctive uh, set of dress and architectural customs and ways of eating and ideas about liberty and how how and why do we marry and what is our religious practice and and uh, all this stuff. They are they are a culture. They're not just English. They're they're a distinctive culture. Um, well, then then you get the Civil War. Uh, Puritan uh, Cromwell rises to power. Uh, the Puritans are suddenly welcome in England. So some of them go back, but uh, who who comes out from from southwest England, from Alfred's old kingdom of Wessex, right? A, a royalist who are who are who have now lost 
uh, and uh, the Massachusetts Bay is full of uh, full of roundheads, so they come to the Chesapeake, and so you get this Cavalier migration, who eat and dress and worship uh, and think differently, uh, uh, and uh, and and then you've got. Uh, you get a, a Quaker migration that comes from kind of central North England and has strong Scandinavian roots, the old Danelaw populations, uh, and they come into the uh, up the up the Delaware River and into you know sort of Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, and then finally the uh, Appalachians, right? And he he uses the term North British borderers, although sometimes Scots Irish is a is a common term, but. But people who who are border people who live on uh, the border of England and Scotland, where for something some crazy length of time, like 600 years, every single king but one uh, on both sides of the border invaded across their land, right? So, so they are they're a population whose culture is shaped by that dominant fact, and they come and they find America basically occupied. Well, everyone found America basically occupied, but I mean occupied by the Europeans, and so they. Uh, so they keep going, and they walk past uh, the planters and the Yankees, and and uh, they end up hitting, uh, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and settling and settling there. So, um, sorry, that's a lot. That's a lot of background. But the point is, I, I read this book, and I thought, you know, this uh, this is a piece that is missing. What I what I want to do is t- is tell a story in a setting that is America, but it's America as the Holy Roman. Empire. It's it's America where uh, where we can still see these discrete cultures, where we can treat these different cultures like we would treat a fantasy race in a in an epic fantasy novel. We can explore them and learn about their different you know their different names, their different worldviews, and their habits, and their old hatreds and their obsessions, uh, and. Uh, and and uh, and and an America that is that is organized with, with empire, an America where you can have on the one hand aldermen and mayors and burghers, uh, and on the other hand dukes and land grobs, uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, so there are other there are other influences I'm sure. Just to just to call one last one out because um, I'm rereading this book and so I and I need to mention it. So uh, Susanna Clark's. Um, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is a uh, is a standalone novel. I think she's working on a sequel. The first one took ten years, so we'll see when the sequel comes out. Uh, it is a wonderful book about the return of magic to England. It is set in uh, in the Regency kind of Napoleonic period uh, around eighteen hundred to eighteen fifteen ish, and uh, it is very English and it is tied up in English ideas uh, about uh, uh, fairies uh, and ask questions like what is England and what is an Englishman as well as what what is English magic like and uh, and and so another piece of sort of the thinking or the the effort as I was writing with GI was to say well what what would an what would an American counterpart look like what what would a what would a book look like that asks questions like, what does it mean to be American? What is American magic? What is America? So uh, I don't want to be theme heavy in in writing, but but that is a, that's a piece that was in my heart that I was writing the story. Yeah, there's, I mean, uh, 
we get a lot of this in the book, but you know, it's 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 a rousing adventure story at heart with with just this background that seeps through. Uh, well, let's talk about the story. Our our heroine is Sarah Calhoun. Uh, at least that's the way we first know her. She's a very precocious fifteen year old, and the book is is in among other things, a coming of age story of Sarah. And she's got an odd deformity. Um, can you tell us about Sarah and about the world where she grew up? This little area where she grew up in particular. Yeah, yeah. So she, um, so Nashville. This is an epic fantasy novel that starts in Nashville. Uh, Sarah is a witch. She is a talented hexer. She, so by the recitation of nursery rhymes together with the judicious use of, you know, egg yolks and blood and spit and stuff like this. She can accomplish uh, charm. She's, she's good at it. Um, she is bright. She is uh, funny. She's brave. She's fiercely loyal. She's also uh, proud, paranoid, xenophobic, and just a little bit mean. Um, and she uh, and she's grown up as the youngest daughter, uh, she believes, of Iron Andy Calhoun, who is a uh, who's a military hero. He's a veteran of the Ohio Forks War and the Pontiac Uprising, uh, and he is uh, he is one of thirteen people in Appalachia entitled to cast a vote for emperor and other key uh, decisions under the 1784 Philadelphia Compact organized by the Lightning Bishop Benjamin Franklin. So. Uh, so he, he is, like I, I was saying, this is an America that looks like the Holy Roman Empire in some ways. Uh, Appalachia is, is organized around 13 great families, uh, collectively sometimes called the Ascendancy. Uh, and so the, so the Calhoun family uh, sends one elector uh, anytime there is an assembly of electors, and, and Iron Andy is, uh, is that guy. Now, um, as the uh, as his youngest daughter, Sarah has received uh, an extraordinary upbringing. So there are uh, traditional ideas, or there a traditional idea about how uh, women and men are to be educated in this culture, and a woman's upbringing and a man's upbringing are different things. And what Sarah gets is, in fact, neither. Uh, what she she gets is one-on-one tutoring by the elector that includes. Uh, exotic things like Latin, uh, as well as uh, geography and uh, politics, um, uh, because uh, Andy is the only one who uh, in the clan knows the truth of of her origin, which is she is she is not his daughter. Uh, he is he is fostering her and hiding her. And so we meet Sarah, and so Sarah's deformity. Yeah, she has an eye that's never opened, and it is swollen and uh, bulging, and this is the first thing we see about her from another character's point of view on the, in the first paragraph, really. Uh, and it oozes pus, and uh, she is self-conscious about it and a little bit bitter. This is sort of part of her meanness as a defense mechanism. Um, and uh, and she has this, this bad eye. And, uh, and on the day of the tobacco fair in uh, Nashville, uh, Sarah has come down to uh, sell the electors tobacco. She and her cousins, the Calhoun Youngs, have come to sell tobacco, uh, and uh, and, uh, and and she is the victim of a kidnap attempt by a by a Yankee Army chaplain uh, and wizard. And that's how that's how the story that's how the story goes. Or starts. Yeah. Um, 
so, I mean, my guess was that we were somewhere around 1800 in the novel, if if you wanted to have some parallel to our world. Um, we have some people who did great deeds in the 1750s and 60s, who are the old folks now, at least. Um, we're in North America, but it's very different. Um, maybe there's a great map that um, that that's on the back of the dust jacket by uh, Riss Davis, um, I think it's a beautiful map that, that gives you a really good idea of, of all this. Um, and uh, along with the wonderful Dan DeSantos cover, don't you? Are you happy with that? I, I hope so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they don't get much better than that. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Um, so Sarah may be the Sian of an important family. Um, it's hard to talk about the story without, you know, without the revelation that she is. Um, so this monk shows up, um, Thelanes, uh, I believe you call him. I don't know if that's the way to say it. Um, he's come to Nashville looking for her. Uh, tell us about him. He's a very interesting character. Yeah, so uh, he is. Um, a lot of the action that that's uh, in this book is driven by... Uh, by a, by a former generation. So Sarah is, um, and you're right. I want to I want to minimize the spoilers. There will be some. So it turns out it turns out Sarah is the uh, is not the daughter of Iron Andy Calhoun. Uh, you learn this early in the story. She yeah. is instead the uh, daughter of the dead former Empress Mad Hannah Penn. Um, so the 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 imperial throne is elective, but it has been in the Penn family for the two or three generations. Since the compact, uh, the year is 1815, you know, uh, uh, and, and uh, so it's about 30, 30 years uh, that the compact's been in force. Uh, as they were generally influential leaders as essentially the wealthiest people uh, and the biggest landowner for, you know, a century and a half before the compact. Um, and so Sarah is from, is from on one side, is from this family. Uh, her, her mother, uh, Hannah Penn, uh, famously was immured, locked away by her brother 15 years ago. It turns out that's about the time of Sarah's birth, um, and has been known as Mad Hannah Penn. And as the story opens, Mad Hannah has just died. Uh, on her father's side, Sarah is, uh, the daughter of the imperial consort, uh, and not the emperor, uh, but in his own right, the king of one of the seven mound builder kingdoms of the Ohio, Cahokia, the largest, and sort of in their uh, religion and magic, sort of the central of the seven mound builder kingdoms. Uh, and um, uh, and he he died mysteriously. So uh, so uh, what's happened is that it, the empress's death is is not accidental. Uh, she has been uh, murdered, finally, at the end of a long period of imprisonment by her brother, the living emperor, Thomas. Uh, and Thomas Penn has learned of, that Sarah, of Sarah's existence for the first time and where she is and, and wants her killed. And that's, that's one of the basic drivers in the story. Now, Salonay is, uh, is a monk. He is a, he is a member of the, he is one of what they call the firstborn. So, uh, so, so the, in, in, uh, as I said earlier, the book is, in, in a way, about America. The name America does not appear in it. The name America doesn't really belong uh, in the book. 
similarly, the word human doesn't appear. Uh, word human being. There are there are two different groups we would think of as human beings. There are, and uh, they are they are they they are all the children of Adam. They all they all have a biblical narrative as part of their origin story. But only some of them, only humans like you and I uh, think of ourselves, are the children uh, of Eve. Uh, the others are, are sometimes called the children of wisdom or the firstborn or Ophidians, and there, there are stories about them, uh, positive and negative, to tell where they came from. Uh, but some other woman, not Eve. So, so these are the people. These are these are the people who uh, whose kingdoms fill the Ohio, uh, uh, the seven mound builder kingdoms, and thought, and they are uh, they're distinctive. They they look human in many ways. They are uh, magically more gifted than the children of Eve. Uh, they are uh, they are allergic to silver, uh, and uh, and Thalonese is one of them. He is a monk. Uh, he's a priest, and uh, and he was uh, both the uh, uh, companion of Sarah's father uh, when he was this sort of military hero and king, uh, riding the borders of his land. Uh, and then uh, after after his uh, his lord's death, he was the the father confessor, the priest to Hannah in her imprisonment. And uh, and he is. Uh, he is uh, he's driven by a couple things. Uh, one, his his order uh, is an extremely uh, has an extremely libertarian spirituality. He's 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 uh, he's all about persuasion uh, and, uh, and no coercion. Persuasion uh, and no coercion. And they were their their origin. Their, their patron saint is a the firstborn named Setis, who was the mayor of Wittenberg and who opposed. Uh, who opposed Martin Luther, uh, and uh, but would not would not oppose him forcibly at all, and 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 died as a martyr. Um, so uh, so there's there's that element in Thelonious, and the other piece is driving him is is, is guilt because uh, he uh, he let the he let Hannah herself know where Sarah was, and and therefore when Thomas discovered there were children. Uh, and tortured his sister Hannah to death. Uh, Hannah was able to give away um, uh, the location of Sarah, and so Thalonis is driven by guilt. So he's being. But he's plunked a wizard. Yeah. Um, so Thomas Penn is chasing uh, these. We maybe haven't. I don't know if. So. So Hannah had triplets, and one of those triplets is Sarah. One of those triplets is Sarah. And um, these triplets are the heirs because they are by Thomas's brother who was murdered, right? So, so met not an untimely Thomas. end somehow. So they are, yeah, so, so they are, uh, it's not Thomas's brother, it's his sister Hannah. They are the children of Hannah. They're the children of Hannah, Penn, and therefore they are the heirs to the Penn land holding fortune. Now, nobody is the heir to being emperor. That, that's an elective position, but the yeah. Penn land
Ohio kingdom. Okay, I had that backwards. So Hannah is the sister of the pen, and their father was is uh, is the firstborn. Yep. Okay. That's exactly right. All right. And and Sarah is half firstborn, and and the firstborn are rather like elves in some way, I would say. Correct. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave. That is right. Uh, pallid, dark-haired, magically gifted, slightly not human. Hmm. So, uh, well, this this sets up sort of. Um, well, let's. Uh, this sets up the bad guy, um, or one of the the several bad guys who are after Sarah, and um, uh, explain a bit about the bad guys. Angleton, the Reverend Angleton, is a piece of work, isn't he? He's he's quite willing to torture and maim if he's doing the Lord's work. Yep. Yep, that's right. He's uh, he's he's uh, so he so we I don't use the word Puritan. Um, one of the sort of features of the story is that there has been no Reformation. Martin Luther was not about Reformation. He, his political controversies actually relate to the firstborn uh, and, uh, and to political power. Um, so there's been no Reformation, and in fact, uh, uh, and this is not explicit in Witchy but it is in one of the sequels, uh, the papacy, uh, in fact, has has fallen out of uh, existence because the uh, Borgia Pope uh, turned Turk to save his life, converted to Islam, and the papacy ended. So you've got a sort of conciliar model uh, of Christianity. So he's not a he's not a Puritan, uh, but he is a uh, he is a parson. He is a preacher. He is an army chaplain, uh, and he's been Thomas's companion, uh, the Emperor Thomas's companion from their school days. Uh, and uh, and he is he is haunted. He is absolutely driven. Uh, well, he's got two big drivers. One of them is loyalty to Thomas, who uh, when when his Ezekiel Angleton's fiance died in a carriage accident, young Thomas uh, Thomas saved Ezekiel from from ruin. Uh, forced the uh, forced the Harvard to. Uh, to give him another shot, and, and ultimately placed him in the in the Martinite order where uh, where he is. Um, so he's very loyal to Thomas. He's also really driven by a fear of an obsession with death. Again, dating to the the death of Lucy, his uh, his betrothed, uh, and and he is very he sees the world very black and white, uh, and he and he yet is absolutely willing to uh, kidnap. And commit acts of violence if he believes that he is doing it uh, uh, for for the right reasons. Now, one of the things that starts to happen to him over the book is he starts to he starts to be forced to, uh, into situations that make him uncomfortable and question uh, what are uh, uh, he forced to do things that he he would have seen as 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 black, um, including. Uh, become aligned with one of the other bad guys that we haven't we haven't really mentioned yet, or, or only in passing. So uh, one of one of the villains of the piece is uh, the necromancer Oliver Cromwell. Uh, and I love I love Tony. I love playing with history. Um, <laughs> well, Cromwell would seem to be a, a very long lived uh, Oliver Cromwell. Then I guess because yeah. he's a necromancer. Yeah. In, in real history, uh, a, a fierce wind blew the day Cromwell died, called the Death Wind. 
transcendent death. Uh, and Cromwell, we get some some insight into Cromwell's view later, uh, but Cromwell uh, sees himself as uh, not as the villain, uh, not not as the necromancer. He sees himself as the hero. He's, he has this plan is to liberate the children of Eve uh, from from death. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, he is manipulating, uh, he is manipulating Thomas, he is manipulating, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Angleton, uh, he sends, uh, undead and other kinds of, uh, magical servants, uh, after Sarah, uh, and, uh, and, uh, is one of the, one of the, one of the movers in the story. I was going to ask you about the, <clears throat> our, our, wraiths um and nasties um a little later but tell us about some of like the mockers and the lazars oh scary yeah so the mockers are uh so this is part of um part of cromwell's uh sorcery uh cromwell in his in his taking over of england in his lifetime before he is defeated by by john churchill uh, and, and driven out of England. Uh, part of his forces are um, are, uh, are are not human. They're sort of the nature of mechanical things. And this is a this is a play again on real history. Cromwell called his Puritan army the New Model Army. Well, in in Witchy Eye, some of those are genuinely models, uh, including the mockers who were who were beings made out of clay uh, that that change shape. Uh, the, the, the Lazars are, uh, are an, an undead, uh, uh, they're, they're not, they're not a, they're not a, they're not a species, they're, they're, they're undead individuals who have made a pact to continue to live, and, uh, and the, the sort of leaders of this band of Lazars who come after Sarah later in the book, uh, include, uh, Robert Hook, uh, who was uh, Cromwell's sorcerer uh, sidekick, uh, and and uh, Black Tom Fairfax, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, guys are pale, uh, fingernails and toenails that never stop growing, and uh, rotting black eyes that drop worms out of them. So, so uh, so they're pretty gross. They're pretty gross. And uh, well, it, let's talk about a few of the other characters as well, because there's there's some wonderful characters in the book. There's Calvin Calhoun, who's protective brother cousin to uh, Sarah. Um, he is pretty handy to have around, especially when the mocker um, or two tries to attack. He's uh, he's he's sort of the Lancelot sort of guy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He genuinely wants to do good, and he. Uh, uh, Cal is a cattle rustler by trade, um, and uh, you know he's also uh, he's uh, uh, he's a uh, uses the term new light. He's a he's a Christian. He's a new light Christian, sort of light on the saints and uh, heavy on kind of practical, uh, you know, being a good person, uh, uh, sort of spirituality. And, uh, and, and Cal is, uh, is genuinely a good guy. Now, now Calvin, uh, so he, you know, he can, he can rope, he can start a fire, he can track, he can hunt. He's, uh, he's sort of the commercially savvy person among his cousins. So on the, 
on the, 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 the first day in the tobacco fair when the story starts, he's the one who's negotiating with the Dutch and the Ebo and the Castilian traders. Um, so, and Cal is, uh, Cal's got a couple things going on. One of them is that he's always been in love with his, with Sarah, who he thought was his cousin. Uh, and he felt conflicted about that. And so for him, uh, the, the news that she is not his cousin is a wonderful release. Uh, and, uh, he, he tries a couple times to sort of, uh, uh, press his suit and, and can't for various reasons. And so he's this guy who is in love and, uh, and is taking care of, uh, will do his best to, to, to protect Sarah and take her where she needs to go. Uh, because he loves her and because that's the right thing to do, even though it is essentially, uh, all, uh, all self-sacrificing. Um, but yeah, he's, there are a few, it's his fantasy, so you can write, you can write a few unabashedly good people into these stories. And, and he is one of them. He's, he's not perfect, uh, but he is, uh, he is unironic and, uh, and, uh, wants to do good and is in love. Yeah, he well, he's he's fun, and we can always feel that he's he's watching over Sarah. And there's um there's Bad Bill, another character, Sir William Johnston Lee, um, who's sort of a he's he's a bit of comic relief, even though it's kind of a dark comic relief, and he's um he's sort of a tragic comic figure in general, isn't he? Yeah. So so Bill is uh, a cavalier with a capital C, meaning he's he's part of that aristocracy of the Chesapeake. And, uh, he is, uh, he's a military man and he, uh, uh, and he fought against, uh, New Spain with, uh, with Sarah's father and, uh, in fact was the head of his bodyguard unit, the Imperial Lighthouse Dragoons called the Philadelphia Blues. And, uh, so Bill is a, is a, is a gunman, uh, and, uh, sort of an aristocrat. And he has some definite weaknesses, uh, including uh, foreign language, uh, and uh, he's, he's a little bit of a bigot, uh, not in a, in a mean-hearted way, but, but you know, foreigners are always definitely foreign. Uh, and he's uh, completely incompetent with with money and, and uh, some of those practical details. Yeah, he has trouble figuring uh, out exactly what that stuff called interest is and how it, and it keeps biting him. <laughs> Baffled by interest, which is a bad thing to be baffled by when you are in debt to money lenders, uh, and that's where we see Bill at the beginning. Is he's he's fallen, he's fallen really hard um, because he was he was once a, he was once a knight in his in his uh, in his view. He you know he he rode to war and he rode on adventures and he dealt out justice with Sarah's father, the the Lion of Missouri. That's what he, uh, her father was called. And, and Bill was, uh, William, Sir William was part of that band, um, and now he's not. Now he is uh, an alcoholic, and he is uh, he's basically a thug for hire, uh, living in New Orleans. Uh, and, uh, and we see him uh, uh, on a day when he has uh, planned to uh, commit a murder, basically, and it is uh, to, uh, to be for hire, because he'll get paid, and that will get him out of his debt, uh, with, uh, with the bishop's son, uh, son of the Bishop of New Orleans, who was his money lender, uh, and let him, let him pay off his landlady. Um, and, and Bill gets involved in the story because, uh, b- because his connection with Tholonais and, uh, with Sarah's father and mother, um, he knows where one of the other children 
one of the other triplets is hidden. So, uh, so once once the action gets started in Nashville, their first objective becomes. Oh, I you know I know I Thalonates know where where William Lee is or where he was. Let's go find him, and we can we can go uh, connect with your brother and sister. So Bill is a, Bill's a great fighter. He's great at at seizing the initiative and doing the thing that needs to be done and shooting to kill. Um, but he's fun to write because uh, he often misses the nuance of people and culture uh, and language uh, around him. He's sort of the, he is uh, a fun character, but he's also the purpose of the quest that Tholonais and Sarah and Cal are on. Um, and this is a coming of age novel for Sarah. And uh, like I said, even though there's a lot of, you know, just fighting and good adventure as well. But uh, there's even a Huck Finn-like trip down the Mississippi, and uh, Sarah's um, encounter with the Mississippi kind of uh, marks her transformation from a simple country girl, in a way, to to what she's going to become. Um, I guess tell us a little bit about this this journey that that Sarah's taking on the inside and the outside. Yeah. So uh, so Sarah's. Uh... Sarah's journey is going to take her into places she does not expect. Uh, one of the other major uh, actors in the book is uh, is a god. Uh, is uh, is in fact the god of the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers, uh, and it's a god who has a has a an ecology that is a that is sort of reminiscent of. Uh, Sort of your Horus, Osiris, uh, or Dyad, or something out of India. The god exists in alternating manifestations, uh, and there has been. And I'm, I'm going to tread a little carefully here because it's given so many spoilers. But the thing is, there's a lot in the book, so there's so much still you haven't read. Oh, well, um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you about the Beast Man and the and the Heron King and such. So let's let's talk about that. It's just cool, it's super cool. We need to mention it. So. So he's a so so he's a god, uh, and he 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 exists for long periods in this peaceful manifestation, uh, and then uh, and then he and then and then he has a son, and his son has a short and terrible reign of violence, judgment, and destruction. Uh, at the same time, driven to reproduce again, so that his son can return as the peaceful manifestation. So it's 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 one god, but it, it exists in alternating kind of father son. And um, and pe- and people uh, in the Ohio are somewhat aware of this. A real understanding of it turns out to be part of the the royal uh, lore that is passed down by the kings and queens of Cahokia, who are who are tied to that god and and its ecology. So Sarah's Sarah's journey is going to be uh, so so so. One of the things kicking off the action in the story is that uh, that we've had the transition, uh, and and this this manifests itself as strange messengers out of the Mississippi saying uh, Peter Plowshare is dead, which which people mostly don't have any idea what he's talking about, what they're talking about. Well, what it means is the, the peaceful manifestation is over, uh, and and uh, great great destruction is coming. So Sarah's path will ultimately. Uh, intertwine inextricably 
with that um, uh, with that god who uh, who mostly rules the Mississippi River and the Ohio. Uh, the uh, the Missouri is this sort of magical, fecund but also mutating wilderness, uh, which uh, it and the great green wood around it generate. Uh, still have American megafauna, although we don't see them. They're obliquely referred to a bit in book one. We'll see them in book two a little. Uh, but also generate the beast kind, who are who are, um, who are part human, part animal, but not in any predictable way. And no no two beast kind look alike. Uh, the the two that we see most closely in book one. Uh, one of them has a turtle's head. One of them and, and is basically a turtle walking on its hind legs. The other is a, a, a beautiful woman who has the bill of a duck uh, on the front of her face. So, um, yeah, so that's so the Heron King. The Heron King is this, is this god, uh, and his, his built-in drive to destroy everything and then procreate against his will because he doesn't actually want to be replaced by his peaceful son slash self um, is is also one of the movers in the story. Yeah, and I mean, and the question of the story is, will how's Sarah going to deal with all this? And she's she's finding out that uh, that she's uh, being chased by the by horrors, and um, she she's the possessor of amazing magical talents if only she can harness them and it's just 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 great stuff uh, great epic fantasy stuff um so uh what are you working on at the moment dave will we see more novels set in i mean i i hope we see more set in the witchy eye uh universe because this is uh although it's a clear uh complete novel in itself um with some some real resolution it's also uh obviously there can be more going on uh, afterwards yeah, this is this is. Uh, I'm writing book two. Uh, as of as of right as of now, I've got a little more than half of book two uh, written, uh, and uh, book two uh, follows Sarah into um, into the Ohio. We see the firstborn more. We learn more about this uh, kind of magical slash sacred ecology of the gods. Uh, that she is uh, tied to. At the same time, we see more of, uh, we see the other siblings, uh, one of whom has been uh, kept hidden by a Catalan pirate uh, in the Gulf, uh, and the other one is living uh, as a, sort of a uh, uh, despised orphan figure uh, in the home of an insane, the Earl of John's Land. Who is in who is in the which is uh, which North Carolina actually uh, who is uh, who's mad uh, and and mad for reasons that tie back to uh, some of some of Bill's actions uh, and and the, the earlier history of some of the other characters. We also get to see more of uh, more of the cultures that compose uh, this uh, this non-America America. Uh, more of the uh, Ohio Germans. Uh, we get to spend some time uh, with some Algonqu with an Algonquin character uh, that I'm very uh, that I like quite a bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's very exciting. That's next. I I would like. And by the way, uh, there is a I should say this. There is a prequel story up on Bain's website right now, and that's a prequel short story 
Yeah, it's uh, the way you get to it is um, at the moment it's on, it, it's on the Bain.com front page and it links from there. Um, after it goes down, it will be in the free ebook download. You can get at Bain eBooks. Um, uh, free short stories 2017, and that will be up perpetually. You'll always be able to uh, to get that. Uh, it's um, Bre- De Bridanici. Is that how you say it, or is it? That's the title. Dave Britannici. Yeah, Dave Britannici. British Gods. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And that is a, that's a, so that's another historical joke. So look, so I look, these, uh, one, it's, I'm like Bob Dylan, like not to flatter myself, but to understand Bob Dylan, you have to realize he's joking all the time. Um, and, and I, I'm also telling sort of little historical and cultural jokes repeatedly. And I, and I, and, and I, I, they're buried. I'll point out a couple. So, so Dave Ritonici is a prequel story. It is about uh, John Churchill. Uh, John Churchill, uh, in real life, uh, was one of the great antagonists of Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. He led the United Forces of England and the Netherlands and other other non-France powers, and basically stopped, uh, you know, prevented France uh, from entirely taking over Europe. He was, I think, essentially undefeated in the field uh, for a decade. The, this caused him to, to be made the Duke of Marlborough, and he built the Blenheim Palace. He is the ancestor of Winston Churchill. Um, so, uh, in in the in the witchy eye universe, he is not the great antagonist of Louis the Fourteenth, but the great antagonist of Oliver Cromwell. He is the guy who who uh, rebels against Cromwell's uh, eternal republic and uh, and saves saves England with a question mark because part of this just short story is about one of the hard choices he makes to uh, to prevent England uh, from. from 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 being destroyed to to save his forces from uh, one of the necromancer spells, uh, and it involves uh, rejecting Christianity. Uh, so uh, just 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 one of the little jokes. I'll give away one of my own little jokes. Okay, in real life, John Churchill's father, Winston Churchill, the first Winston Churchill, wrote a book. He was a cavalier, and so uh, he was during the during the. He was out of favor, and then King uh, Charles II came back, and like lots of other cavaliers who had been out of favor, he did things to try to impress Charles II uh, and, and get in favor at court. He wrote a book, and the book was a book of heraldry, and the book was called Divi Britannici. That was, the in real life, the name of the book written by John Churchill's father, which means something like uh, August British men, something like that, okay? Um, so... In, in the Witchia universe, instead he wrote a book called De Britannici, which is British Gods. Uh, and this volume is in the story and is part of the inspiration for his son John making then the uh, the decision to return to the fold of Woden and uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Wayland Smith and Hearn the Hunter uh, to stop the necromancer. So I love that story. I'm thrilled it's up on on Bain website, and I would love to write more of that period, uh, including others. So I'm hopeful. We'll see how the launch goes, but I would love to write many, many, many stories in the setting. Yeah. It's a really, really cool story. Um, and even though you have to maybe go out in the weeds a little bit to get the uh, pun there, <laughs> the play on words, <laughs> but um, it's really cool. Um, that what's so great about Witchy Eye and the story is um, the 
the ability to read them on a on just a fun adventure level, and then to just get into the background uh, when you feel like it, and uh, the richness of the world. Um, it's just uh, it's it's impressive on a lot of levels, and just very fun and very entertaining. Um, the book is Witchy Eye by D.J. Butler, which is at booksellers everywhere now. You can get it, folks. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Tony. I had a great time. I appreciate you inviting me. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the Rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. Hog surprised me. Bessie said quietly as she and Daniel followed the others up the boarding ramp. I thought he was angry also. I suspect he was, Daniel said. But Hogg isn't going to do anything because he's out of control. He knows that killing a Pantelarian driver would cause all sorts of trouble for me. So he made sure that Evans kept his mind on business too. I believe we could have finessed the driver, Bessie said, deadpan. Daniel was still laughing as he entered the Kaisha behind her. He seated himself at the command console. It was already live with the display which Adele had prepared for him. The Madison Merchant, Captain Sorley commanding, had landed in Brotherhood Harbor two days ago, 49 hours now to be as precise as Adele always was. The ship had lifted off again seven hours later without listing a destination and, indeed, without more than cursory notice to Brotherhood control that she was lifting which I suspect is true for at least half the ship's landing on Corsera, Daniel thought with a smile. Blockade runners and tramp freighters generally were crewed by people who ignored rules which weren't backed by potential force. Corsera didn't have guard ships in orbit. Daniel smiled even more broadly. The controllers on the ground here weren't going to get bent out of shape about such details either, so long as duties were paid on cargo coming or going. There hadn't been time for the Madison merchant to shift cargo. It was no skin off the nose of Brotherhood control if ships managed to collide because a couple cowboys had chosen to lift off at the same moment. A part of Daniel preferred that attitude to the care with which he himself entered and left harbor. A starship's astrogation console automatically dumped its log to the port computer on landing. That default could be circumvented or even faked, but Sorley hadn't had any reason to do so if he or anybody aboard his rust bucket even had the skills. Daniel wasn't sure he could have reprogrammed the log himself. Adele had highlighted the data. Dace had been the most recent landfall before the Madison merchant reached Corsera. The garden was a typical way station for ships approaching the ribbon stars from the galactic east, 
so it would have been on Sorley's course from Cinnabar. Daniel switched to the command channel. With the pumps running and all the Kaisha's other systems in readiness for liftoff, there was too much noise to trust unaided voice. Vasi, he said, plot a course for Dace, figure an hour, but I plan to lift as soon as everybody's aboard. Corey and Cazale should arrive within minutes with the remainder of the crew, which had been on duty at the construction sites. Wochins with Dassey and Barnes, her two strikers, had gone into Hablinger to pick up the off-duty personnel. No former sissy was going to deliberately miss a recall signal, but there was a decent chance that some of them were going to be blind drunk or dead drunk. Spacers who couldn't remember their own name, or who weren't hearing anything except the symbols being clashed by the cherubs in their skulls, might not react as quickly as they would wish the next morning when they had sobered up. Wochins and the bosun's mates could carry them back unconscious or, if necessary, knock them unconscious and carry them back. An hour was plenty of time to get everybody aboard, though it might be a day before some of them were really up to speed. Adele highlighted a separate batch of data. The context wasn't immediately clear to Daniel, so at first glance it meant nothing. I searched all the files in Brotherhood for mentions of the Madison Merchant or any of its officers, Adele explained on a two-way link. As soon as the ship landed, Sorley checked with every chandlery in the port to find a reaction mass pump. She spoke matter-of-factly, as though anybody could have combed every database in a city 500 miles away in less than an hour, since Adele wouldn't have started searching until after she had alerted Daniel. Of course, I've seen people blink when I tell them that I've shaved days off a plotted course by going out on the hull to keep an eye on conditions in the Matrix. And didn't have any luck, I'd guess, Daniel said. When the ships in Hablinger Pool had dropped into the muck, they'd burned out more pumps than there were replacements on all Coursera. That's correct, Adele said. Chowdhury Sons offered to adapt a bilge pump taken from a surface barge, which seems odd, but Sorley had arranged to look at it later in the afternoon. The Madison merchant took off before the meeting was to take place. Adapting a bilge pump is rather a clever notion, Daniel said. I'll have to drop in on Chowdhury Sons when next I'm in, Brotherhood. There wouldn't be any real purpose in seeing the ship chandlers, but meeting clever people was never a waste of time. If you conceal it properly, which would be difficult. Probably much more difficult than Captain Sorley realized. But that wasn't the real question, because Sorley hadn't bought the unit. The Madison merchant had lifted with a pump which had been failing when Daniel glanced over the trap on Cinnabar. The merchant's pump in its cinnabar state wouldn't have been able to load significant amounts of reaction mass from Brotherhood Harbor. And if Sorley had planned to buy a replacement, the situation must have gotten even worse. Rather than head straight for Dace with the kidnapped Rickard Cleveland, Sorley might look for a place where the ship could fill her reaction mass tanks at leisure, and the crew could make what was doubtless yet another attempt at repairing the pump. Adele might be able to find suitable planets which hadn't been catalogued, but Sorley wouldn't have that option unless he or one of his navigating officers had operated in the ribbon cluster previously. Sorley hadn't, according to the biography Adele had prepared in Xenos. It would be just bad luck if one of his officers had local experience. Daniel brought up the sailing directions for the ribbon stars, then chortled in triumph. He'd found a planet within three days' sail of Coursera, which was listed as suitable for watering in an emergency. The notation had a green star, however. Lieutenant Vesey, Daniel said on the command push, please plot a course for point HH150-9270. 
same time frame as before. Break. Two more makeshift jitneys had arrived outside the Kaisha. Spacers tramped up the boarding ramp in puzzled enthusiasm. The Liberty Group from Havlinger had yet to arrive, but they wouldn't be long. Switching manually to the two-way link, Daniel continued, Now, Adele, what can you learn about why HH1509270 is listed as being biologically hazardous? That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a cannon loaded with chain mail, letters, and grape shot made of real grapes, which is guaranteed to take out the skirmish line of any model army, plus the thanks and praise of the readers of Appalachia and Beyond for DJ Butler, author of Witchy Eye. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Stars.